Good morning. Woo. Whoa, it's slim in here. Such a weird, weird week. Slim but mighty, that's what Kyle said, yes. Slim but powerful. Um, yeah, as most of you notice, uh, things are a little different today. Um, and it's been kind of an odd week. So for those of you who don't know, we had a couple of our staff that um, uh, were exposed to the coronavirus. And through that, we all had to get tested. And it just kind of sent us on a whole like kind of whirlwind of circumstances this last week. And so we're trying our best to figure out how to navigate this. And uh, we don't necessarily know what that is. But, you know, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you don't, you don't have to. Most of us are wearing masks just for the simple fact that Panhandle Health thought it would be good if we did that, and we want to protect others. And so um, for right now, that's, that's what we're doing. Um, moving forward, I, I do want to let you guys know, if you don't follow us on Instagram or on Facebook, Anthem CDA, please go and do so because we're going to be updating that regularly, uh, and Sundays could be changing quite rapidly on a week-by-week basis. Um, just to kind of let you in on some of what could happen, we're, we're waiting for word back from First Baptist to see if there's the potential of us actually moving into First Baptist Church on Fifth and Wallace sooner than later, uh, because that would allow us to not have to do set up and tear down. And if numbers are going to kind of dwindle through the COVID season and summer and everything that's going on, it might be good for us to have kind of a plan B um, that doesn't require a ton of setup and a ton of effort on Sunday mornings to put all this together. Um, and we have less people, so technically we could get into the Boys and Girls, or sorry, uh, First Baptist sooner. Uh, and then for those of you who don't know, Boys and Girls Club technically is regulated by the state. So even if Idaho went back to stage two, um, we would be kind of under the authority of the Boys and Girls Club and whatever they tell us to do, and we wouldn't be able to make decisions for ourselves. And so we are looking at that, so I just encourage you guys. Um, anybody ever been to a rave? Anybody? Did anybody rave growing up? Am I the only one that wore jinkos and went to raves? Jeez. Um, <laughs> there we go. Thank you. <laughs> Made me feel somewhat better. Uh, anyway, we're going to be like a rave for the next couple months. So you have to call a week of to figure out what the heck's going on on Sunday. <laughs> and we'll give you all the info. So we'll give you a 1-800 number you can call on Wednesdays and find out what's going on with church on Sunday. Uh, Anyway, that's kind of where we're at. I, I was praying this morning, and honestly, uh, it just, in, in some ways, it felt like a really discouraging week because you feel like uh, you take one step forward, two steps back. Things are constantly changing, and um, it's just odd. And this morning as I was, like, preparing for, um, to preach, I just was thinking, like, we have to be reminded that um, Jesus is the king even over corona, <laughs> and of all our, all our cultural circumstances, and we can't lose sight of that because um, he's still on the throne and he's still worthy to be praised. And so the 50 of us or 40 of us that are here this morning are gonna praise Jesus and we're gonna talk through his word. And um, there's some people that are online with us this morning and they're more comfortable doing that and that's totally fine, but we wanna make the most of the time that we have together, if that's okay with you. So this morning, we're gonna be Matthew chapter six. If you guys wanna turn there, uh, we're going to be in verses 25 through 34. So if you guys would turn there and then um, let's pray and we'll get started. Jesus, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you that even despite all that's kind of swirling around us, we thank you that you're on the throne, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And I just pray, Jesus, that you would 
um, move in hearts this morning, that you'd sort of infiltrate our hearts, God, would your joy and your peace uh, just be evident and just move through this room. God, as we open up your word this morning, would your word speak to us, Lord? I just don't think it's coincidence that each of the people that's here this morning are here, and I pray, God, whatever it is you want them to hear this morning, I pray it be said, and uh, you just submit my tongue and my heart and my mind um, to your will, Jesus. So bless this time this morning. Thank you that we get to do this as your church. God, in your name, amen. Awesome. Matthew chapter 6, are you guys there? Are you guys? Come on now. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. All right, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Uh, Before we read that, ask this question, what is it that makes you anxious in life? I think it's pretty cool that this passage kind of timed with the season that we're in, uh, just culturally. Uh, But what is it that makes you anxious in life? For some of you, is it money? For some of you, is it your future? Uh, For some of you, is it whether or not you're going to be successful? For some of you, is it finding the right spouse? For some of you, is it the thought of being alone? Uh, For some of you, is it death or losing a parent or a child? What is it that makes you anxious? And I think we have plenty to be anxious about in our day and age, don't we? And now with everything that's going on around us in this world, it seems like we have tons to occupy our minds and tons to occupy our thoughts and our time more things to keep us up at night. And in fact, if you're anything like me, you've already had enough to worry about prior to COVID happening. Uh, and it just seemed like one more thing on top of one more thing on top of one more thing. And it was just a lot consuming our lives right now. And I recognize that for some of you in this room, you're all at like kind of varying levels of anxiety in your life, maybe varying levels of fear. Maybe um, some of you are really concerned uh, with specific circumstances right now in your life. Maybe some of you have someone close to you who has either like tested positive for COVID or is more susceptible to it. Um, Maybe some of you are again are in that higher risk category. And um, nonetheless, like everything that's going on is cause for us to feel worried, to get anxious. Um, Maybe some of you are even on the other end of the spectrum where you're kind of like not concerned at all, and the thing that concerns you most is the fact that you're annoyed that COVID is impacting the way you shop and your summer plans and vacations, and it's impacting maybe your own life personally, economically. I have no idea. But regardless of how much uh, anxiety the the cultural demands of our day are causing you, we as Christians need to respond in a manner that's appropriate and consistent with the gospel of Jesus. And so we're, we're called to be wise, we're called to be sensible, we're called to be sympathetic people, and we need to know how to handle the worry and the anxiety that surrounds us, surrounds this situation, because before us is this amazing opportunity to display our trust in God. Um, the rest of the world is wondering what is going on, and we claim to have somewhat of an answer. We claim to um, have this peace, we claim to have this hope. And so when the church is equally as confused and kind of lost in the anxieties and the fears of the times, um, it doesn't really put God's hope and God's, uh, tr- our trust in God on display for the rest of the world. I mean, we should be the ones that are trusting him and have faith that he's in control in the season. But in order to do that, I, I want to look at what Jesus says about anxiety in this passage as we're continuing to study through the book of Matthew. Uh, We've been in this section of scripture in Matthew, referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons that Jesus ever preached. 
Um, and Jesus is dealing with some really practical, some really relevant issues even to our day as we get into this. It's really neat watching how he's lining these up. But the passages that we're going to be reading today actually come on the heels of what we studied last week when Jesus ended on this passage where he was talking about the two M's. Does anybody remember what we talked about last week? M? Dollar sign? Money, okay. And the other M? Materialism. Um, or even uh, in some of your translations, uh, it's referred to as mammon. But um, Jesus talks about money, and he talked about materialism, what we chatted through last week. And he ends with this statement in the passage that we were in last week where he says, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and wealth. And I think there's a lot of significance in the fact that Jesus was talking about wealth and money and things, and then he dives into worry and anxiety. Um, and we'll talk about this a little more in a little bit. But turn with me to Matthew six twenty-five, and let me read this. It says, Jesus said this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about what your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So three times in this past, this section of scripture that we're reading this morning, three times Jesus says, to not be anxious. He literally says, do not be anxious. Um, interestingly enough, I don't know about for you, but when I have gone to people in my life and I've said, don't be anxious. Like, how does that work with your spouses, right? Like, stop worrying, chill out, babe. You know, like, it doesn't work out very well. And yet Jesus seems to make this, the, the, this directive of like, don't worry. Like, don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. But um, it doesn't work for us when we say this to people primarily because anxiety is not a voluntary thing. We don't, like anxiety is something that happens. It's not something we necessarily choose. So none of you got up today and said, you know what, I just am going to live an anxious life today. Did anybody say that? Like, I hope you did not say that. Like, that sucks. None of us got up and said that this morning. Uh, so, so why would Jesus command us to not be anxious, as if we can just stop it. Don't worry, stop. And we know that that's just not that easy. And I believe that what Jesus is simply giving us are these, uh, are, are these instructions to dig deeper into the root of the problem. That Jesus isn't being a drill sergeant and just saying like, stop worrying, and then expecting us to understand that and then go on with our day and be like, oh, that's easy, I just won't worry anymore. It's just not like that. Like the things in our life consume us. And they get roots in our heart and they take over our minds. And so what Jesus is wanting to do is address an issue and dive deeper into it. He's wanting to get to the heart of worry, the heart of anxiety, much like he wanted to get to the heart of 
wealth and money, and he wanted to get to the heart of religion, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Jesus was diving deeper. He, he wants to get underneath the reasons for our anxiety. He's getting to the root of it. And in that sense, he wants to show us how to actually deal with it, sort of like he was doing with religion and with money. He was trying to help people understand the heart. That was his goal. So let's talk about anxiety for a little bit. Um, I don't really feel like I need to necessarily define anxiety for us because how many of you struggle with understanding what that is? You've all probably felt it at some point in your life or you've sensed anxiety. I don't think we're unfamiliar with it, but it's safe to say that anxiety is constantly on the rise in our world. Even before like COVID hit a few months ago, researchers estimated there's about 40 million Americans that suffer from an anxiety disorder. 40 million people that suffer with an anxiety disorder, and those are only the ones that are reported. That's not everybody else. We all have something this morning that we're worrying about. And I think the reason that, that for the, the, this rise in, in anxiety is because it's actually more than a psychological thing. Uh, and I really didn't understand this myself uh, until I started seeing a counselor a couple years ago for myself to work through some things and try to get to the bottom of like why I had struggled with anxiety the way that I, the, the way that I did. And it was really helpful for me to work with the counselor and understand that there are three aspects to uh, to anxiety. One, there's the psychological aspect of anxiety. Two, there's the physical aspect of anxiety. And three, there's the philosophical aspect of uh, anxiety. So psychologically, uh, anxiety can be focused on a specific danger or threat in our life. Um, for some, anxiety can be extremely debilitating. It can be a condition that literally paralyzes people. It is frightening. Like, psychologically, anxiety can be paralyzing. It can, cause people, it can cause people to literally be stopped dead in their tracks and not really understand what to do or how to move forward. It can cause people to constantly be on the lookout for what you think is the worst-case scenario in your life and allow your mind to spin. Like, you're sure that something is going wrong. You're, you're just waiting for the moment when everything comes crashing down on you. When I was a kid, I hit this head-on. I was, like... Third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, my parents enrolled my brother and I in wrestling. And I was the worst wrestler ever. Like, not only did I not like wearing singlets, um, I just did not like wrestling. Like, it was not fun to me. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Like, I just can't, I can't grapple and wrestle. It's just not me. And so uh, my brother, on the other hand, was this amazing wrestler. Like, he'd just, he'd get in the match and they'd, they'd, they'd uh, like, start the match and my brother would literally have the guy pinned and a matter of seconds, and for me, this is what I would do. Prior to the match, I'd be talking to other kids about like, oh man, like, what's this guy like? I have to face off against this guy first off, and they'd be like, oh man, dude, this guy's got like a suplex move where he's gonna like toss you on your neck, your toast, you know, and he's way bigger than you, and I heard he's blah, 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 go down the list, like he's got armpit hair, and I'm in fourth grade, and like he just is a legit dude, and you're not, and, and in my mind, psychologically, there was a game that I was playing because before I even entered, on, got onto the mat, I had convinced myself that the fight was over, that there's no way I could beat it, that there was no way I could step out onto that mat and I could actually wrestle. I just couldn't do it. And so what did I do? I honestly would get out on the mat and then they would have you shake hands and they'd like blow the whistle. And um, I'd just kind of like get in there, lock arms with the guy, and then I'd let him take over, get me on the ground, pin me, and then I'd get up, and I'd be like, cool, I'm done. Like, I, I can check the box. I'm finished with the tournament. 
Like, I just hated it. And so I just would literally roll over and let him pin me. And little did I know that long term, this would be a series of things that would really impact me and these anxiety issues that I had. Because what I realized was I'm all in my head. Psychologically, I'm like constantly one step ahead, fearing the worst case scenario of what can happen. And I've convinced myself that it's going to happen so much so that I won't even take the chance and step out on the mat and give the fight a try. I'm just going to back down and lose. I'll just take it. And then I'll walk away and I'm okay with that. But I was convinced I couldn't fight. Um, Anxiety and worry is something that we often put way too much faith in in our lives. We often have lost before we've even started the fight. And so even more than like this psychological aspect of anxiety, though, is this physical aspect of, of, of anxiety, which we would call stress. Um, something in our bodies becomes triggered by the anxiety. And so we begin to, our bodies begin to pump adrenaline, and they begin to work into like a fight or flight mode. And so our palms get sweaty, our hearts start to race, we get nervous. Um, I, I sort of liken it to like a trip to Ikea, the Ikea store, because about an hour in to your trip into Ikea, you're buried so far into the store, you don't know if you're ever going to get out, right? Like you're convinced that you're stuck there. Like this thing, I'm lost in this maze and I'm trapped and I'm, it's going to be hours before I get out. Sometimes for people who have anxiety issues, they can get so far pinned into their situation, the scenario, that they're convinced that they're never going to actually get out of it. And again, I can speak to this myself because anxiety has been my Achilles heel over the last 15 years of my life. I've had these serious anxiety attacks in seasons of my life, and they're not fun. They're actually extremely frightening, where I would wake up in the middle of the night, my heart would be racing, I'd be like sweating, thinking that I'm literally dying, and I'm not dying, but my body's convinced it's dying, and the scenarios are playing through in my head, and everything's spinning out of control, and I feel like I've lost control of, of my whole body at that point. It's, it's just the worst experience for those of you that have ever had an anxiety attack. But... You, you find that if you're live, constantly living with stress in your life every single day, um, if you're constantly living with these perceived dangers of what could happen, if you're living with like financial, these perceived financial dangers or maybe relationship dangers, health dangers, um, even as we find ourselves with regards to the COVID thing, um, there's some that just are so trapped that they can't sleep. Um, their appetite goes away long-term. What, do, what happens to people who struggle with anxiety stuff long-term and it's not dealt with? Eventually, you burn out. And I've been there, done that. Seasons of my life where I just was tapping out because I couldn't go on. It was so hard. And, and so some of you, like maybe you've developed ulcers. Maybe you had hypertension. Your blood pressure goes up. It wreaks havoc on you both psychologically and it wreaks havoc on you physically. And then the last part of anxiety, that, as I've learned over the years, that um, where it kind of wreaks havoc on you is philosophically. And so we can get the feeling that things are being thrown at us for no rhyme or reason. Like, what did I do to deserve what's happening? Or maybe wondering, like, why is it that God allowed certain things to happen to me in my life? And you start realizing that these events and these circumstances don't add up from your viewpoint, and you start trying to figure out why they happened or 
why they didn't happen or why, why you and not somebody else. And here's the reality is that anxiety affects every part of our lives. This is why it's so important to Jesus because he realizes we're not just dealing with a broken arm. We're dealing with something that affects mind, body, and soul. That all of you is impacted by this. And so Jesus very simply makes the, the entrance into this discussion through money because he knows it's something that drives people. It, he knows that it's something that causes anxiety and worry. But after he gets in here, Jesus is getting to the heart of it all. Like, what is it that is causing everything in you to feel out of control? To start running scenarios in your head, to freak out and literally back yourself out of society altogether and just kind of resort to your home because you don't want to go out anywhere or do anything because of what might happen or because of what's happened in the past. And it's real. And I think when Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, as he says in this passage, at the very end of this passage, I think he's like summing everything else he set up And some good things for me to remember with regards to anxiety is one, that worry has to do with the potential and not the actual. If you're anything like me, you have to be reminded of the fact that not everything you hear is actually going to happen. Much of it is potential and it's not actual. Two is that worry at its root is actually being concerned about what we cannot control. At the core of the issue is the fact that we're losing control uh, at, the core of, at, the, uh, at the core of anxiety uh, is this desire to actually control something that we can't control. That's why we're anxious. We feel the need to control in an area where there's no possibility of control. And anxiety wants to control the uncontrollable, to try to get something, make sense of something in your life. Um, Joey Swope, raise your hand. How many of you guys know Joey? All right. Joey, he's, he's the local legend. But um, I want to I acknowledge Joey this morning because if you haven't met this man, um, you will because you'll exit those doors and he'll be there to shake your hand or give you a high five. But when you meet Joey, you're going to get on this like text chain, uh, most likely. I don't know how many numbers you have in your phone, dude, but it's a lot. And at some point, you're going to receive a text from Joey that's a GIF and it's going to be attached to a phrase. Can anybody tell me what that phrase is? God's in control. And most likely the gift is going to be this little Nintendo controller with (laughs) some sort of caption that says, God is in control. At some point you're going to get sent this. Uh, But at first, I remember when Joey first started sending me these things, there's part of you that goes, yeah, of course, I totally get that. I've heard that my whole life. I grew up in church. Like, yes, God is in control. I get it. But let me tell you guys this morning, I don't know if I know another person in my life that lives that out like Joey does. When he says it, he actually means it. And when he sends those texts to me, he actually is not just sending some flippant text of a Nintendo remote to be a dork. He's actually reminding me that God actually is in control. And when I receive those texts from him, more often than not, they're at seasons or times or circumstances in my life when I desperately needed it and God just like has him drop this funny gif into my text thread and then it says God is in control. And for me, it's this amazing reminder of like, Chris, you need to reprioritize and think about who's actually in control here. 
because it's very easy for me to spin out. And so look at how Jesus starts this discussion here in verse 25. He says, therefore I tell you, meaning that he is, therefore, he's tying it into what he said before, pointing to the previous verse. And in verse 24, he said, no one can serve two masters, either hate one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. So why in the world does Jesus say that? Because Jesus knew that we worry most about that which we're most devoted to. The things we're most devoted to are the things we worry most about. And so Jesus starts with the big one, money. He says if you're devoted to money, then that's what you're going to worry about all the time, if that's where your devotion goes. If you think that money's the one like, indispensable ingredient in the good life, then you're going to worry about it all the time. You'll worry about getting it, you'll worry about keeping it, and you'll worry about losing it. Constantly in life, you'll worry about money because it becomes the object of your affection. It becomes the thing that you're most devoted to. And we tend to worry about the things that we're most devoted to. So thinking about the, even the, the current kind of circumstances of COVID and whatnot um, in, in our culture, it's not hard to see why so many people are getting super anxious about it. Because it's literally impacting every aspect of people's lives. If, if, you're, if somebody's super devoted to their health, then they're going to get anxious over this because health is most important to them. If someone's super concerned about money and this whole situation has the potential of in- impacting their economic status, then they're going to get anxiety. If, if you're most devoted to other people, then you're going to get anxiety. If you're devoted to sports, like you're going to get anxiety because there's none of that right now. If you're devoted to the conspiracies behind COVID, you're going to get anxiety right now because you're just going to get lost. You're going to spin out in all of this. And I think we may live in a society, honestly, that borderlines addiction to being anxious. And we would say, no, that's not true. Like you'd, you'd have to want something to be addicted to it like that or desire it. No. We're borderline addicted to anxious because we always want to live on the edge until the edge causes our minds and our bodies to break down so far that that we're convinced we're going to die. And Jesus specifically says you shouldn't be anxious about your life. And he's hinting at one of the major problems with worry, that at the end of the day, my worries and my anxieties are about what? Somebody help me out. They're about me. At the end of the day, they're about me. It's about my world. It's about my desires, my longings. Worry is a very me-centered thing. Anxiety is me-centered. Jesus is addressing this because he's basically saying if you're devoted to you, then you're going to constantly be worried and constantly have anxiety. Because I never intended you to be the object of your devotion. I intended me to be the object of your devotion. And anytime you put something else before Jesus, you're going to get anxious. You're going to get worried. And you've probably experienced this before, where you become so anxious about something that you find yourself absorbed with you, trying to control it and figure it out. And so you start making selfish decisions. And the worry that Jesus speaks of in this text um, knows nothing of self-sacrifice. The worry that he's talking about knows nothing of laying down one's right for the good of others. The worry that Jesus is talking about knows nothing of humility. And so if you look back over the last few months at all the people who who have been, in a sense, preying on people in crisis through COVID, you have news outlets and social media feeds, and you've got people's fears and anxieties rising. You have businesses 
that are literally capitalizing on people's misfortune in the midst of this, in the midst of unfortunate times. They're taking advantage of this and using fear tactics to boost sales. And at first, like, you even see this and you think, oh, that's just like a good entrepreneur. But they're preying on people in crisis. And we wonder why we live in such a fear-driven, anxiety-ridden, worrisome culture. Because everything we do is contributing to that, and we place our devotion as every other thing, making money, like trying to find peace and contentment in my life through my career, making sure that my family's okay, making sure that my health is okay. And not that all of these things are bad in and of themselves, but when they become the main thing, everything else, it's like a, what is a, uh, a, car, a house built out of cards, right? It doesn't take much for the whole thing just to come crumbling down. And so Jesus goes on to ask a series of questions that sort of challenge our devotion. He says, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, like, is money really what defines your life is what he's asking. And then he gives two examples that demonstrate um, that demonstrate that it actually isn't. First he says, consider the birds of the sky in verse 26. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. These are like really simple, real life examples. Like you don't need some theologian to read this for you and be like, what does that mean? He's using a bird and he's saying like, he cares for the birds and just like he cares for the birds, he's actually gonna care for you. They don't have to worry about sowing or reaping or saving up. Like, The Lord takes care of them. It's very simple what he's saying, but let that sink in, what Jesus is saying this morning, that worry is one of the most useless, non-productive things that we can engage our time and our mental space and our heart space in. So Jesus tells his disciples not to worry about their food or clothes. He, He uses the birds to show why we're not to worry about food, that they don't plant or harvest crops, that yet the heaven, their heavenly father actually feeds them. Birds, if you think about it, do they spend a lot of time in their life storing up or worrying about saving for retirement? No, they don't because God takes care of each and every morsel they need. And so yet yeah, we, we so often live in this culture that it's all about reserving and storing away. We have to have enough put away, that, that so much so that we actually don't have to trust God anymore ourselves because I've got my own backup if God doesn't actually pull through. Second, he says that we should consider the wildflowers in the field. He says they don't labor or spin or spin thread. They don't work basically to adorn themselves, to make themselves look nice. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these flowers. So who was Solomon? Solomon, one of King David's sons, the successor to David's throne, uh, one of the, the wisest and most wealthy kings who've ever lived. Do you guys know what his net worth was? Two trillion dollars. Solomon's net worth was two trillion dollars. He didn't need a thing. He had everything he wanted. He was adorned. And he's saying even the flowers are taken care of better than the man who has everything he wants. So Jesus throws in this one little comment about Solomon to, 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 to kind of contrast this. But flowers don't spend a ton of time worrying about how pretty they look. They, they're beautiful because God actually furnishes them. God adorns them. And it sounds really simple, but let me tell you this. Have you ever sat in silence and watched the birds and looked at the flowers? I, I have this, this older gentleman who has been kind of a mentor in my life. And um, 
he would say things to me randomly in conversation. He'd be like, look to the birds. Look to the birds. And he would just randomly say that. And I'd always be like, yeah, yeah, I know that passage says that. Um, and there was one day where uh, we were on vacation with our family, and I was sitting there at this coffee shop in this like, outdoor patio at this table, and I'm sitting there with my kids, and uh, this flock of birds kind of like descends upon this area where we're at. There's a bunch of them, and they're, they're kind of moving around on the ground, and they're picking up every little morsel, and every bird's fighting in there for the morsels that they're going to get. And I'm watching all this take place, and it was like the Lord was using this to speak to me so deeply, and this sounds so dumb. But I'm like, my goodness, God is literally providing for every morsel they have. Like, do I live my life in such a way that I trust that Jesus will provide for the things that I need? Do I trust in that much? Or have I stored away? Have I adorned myself? Have I tried to basically protect my own world in such a way that I don't necessarily need to trust God because I've got my own reserves and my own things figured out. I control my own world. I don't need God to be in control of anything. But what that leads to eventually is when something in your life is removed that you don't have control of, you get anxious and fearful and worrisome and you freak out. And there's so much peace in the simplicity of the fact that we trust God will provide for us. He will. He promises he will. Now look at verse 27. He says, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that we shouldn't have genuine concern in our life. But he's saying there's a type of worry that is absolutely useless. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? Listen to these stats. 40% of what we worry about never comes to pass. 30% of what we worry about happened in the past and can't be changed. 10% of what we worry about relates to health, even though anxiety makes your health worse. And 8% of worry is legit, but even then you're worrying about it and something that you cannot change. We are an anxious, worry-filled people. And not only can we argue that worry and anxiety are useless, but it often leads to sin in other ways. Um, John Piper said this, he said, think about how many other sins are connected to the root sin of anxiety. Anxiety about money will cause you to hoard or steal. Anxiety about succeeding will make you irritable and impatient with those around you. Anxiety about relationships will make you withdrawn or indifferent toward other people. Anxiety about what others think about you will make you lie or stretch the truth. If anxiety could be conquered, a mortal blow would be struck to many other sins. Because anxiety, if you talk to any counselor, there's a handful of things that every counselor will tell you. The root of most problems starts with unforgiveness. And if it starts at unforgiveness and it manifests into anxiety, eventually it's going to manifest into other addictions and other ways that it comes out in your life. And at the core of it, Jesus is like hitting the nail on the head and getting down to the heart and saying, we can't just like fix the money thing and we can't just fix the worry thing. We have to get to the heart and understand why you've allowed everything else to be elevated above God. Why are you so devoted to everything else but you've sort of set him on the shelf? So how do we overcome anxiety in our life? And Jesus makes um, a, a really interesting connection here. If you look at verse 32, 
He says, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So in verse 32, Jesus connects our anxiety with what? With seeking. It's really interesting. Our anxiety with seeking. He says, the Gentiles, which was a term used for non-Jews, which is also a term used for people who did not follow God. Um, who did not know God. And he sort of says, like, what do you seek? He says, they're the ones that are seeking after all these things, health, wealth, possessions, the things of this life that will ultimately pass away. And that's all they want. That's what they're most devoted to. That's why, what they're so anxious about. And so do you see the principle that our anxieties actually reveal our priorities in our life? What you're anxious about reveals what is most important to you. We get anxious about the things that we put our hope in. That's why earlier in this chapter, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in other words, what you're hoping in, what you're investing in, that's what's gonna have the vice grip on your heart. And so what does Jesus do? He gives us something better to be devoted to. In essence, he says, let me give you something else to seek after. It's almost like he says, you wanna be anxious for something? Be anxious for this. You want to seek something? Seek this. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus mean by that? Like he already told us a couple weeks ago when we were in verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Invest in eternal things. Don't put your ultimate hope in this life. Put it in the next life. But how do we do that? And I think that Jesus gave us hints at this in other parts of the Sermon on the Mount as we've been walking through this over the last couple months where Jesus says things like, love your neighbor as yourself. Where Jesus says things like, go the extra mile. He says things like, turn the other cheek. He says things like, give sacrificially. These were things that, what it looked like to actually put our treasure somewhere else. What it meant when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It meant investing in the things that matter, investing in the things that are eternal, not the things that just take care of you here and now. Seek first the kingdom of God involves two things. One, remembering our hope of heaven And then two, radically demonstrating the love of Christ in the here and now. And we talked about that last week because it's really easy for Christians sometimes, I think, to be like this. Well, um, I know that I have hope in heaven, so here on this earth, I'm just going to kind of grin and bear it and get by and just be anxious, and one day I'll be free of that anxiety when I go to heaven. That is the worst excuse ever because Jesus didn't come to just take care of you eternally. He actually came to take care of you here and now. When Jesus refers to the birds, when he refers to the flowers, is he talking about something that only exists in heaven? He's talking about something that exists here and now on this earth, that he takes care of them in the same way that he's gonna take care of you and I. So check this out. Like the, the great security of our hope in heaven actually frees us to demonstrate the love of Jesus here. Like we're attached to that hope and that somehow motivates us to action here and now. And some of you might think like that sounds super idealistic. But the church took these words to heart. Honestly, go back and study church history and see how they put these words to action. They lived these out. They radically changed the world as a result of where their hope lied and their being grounded in eternity. It changed the way they radically lived in the present. Um, In Hebrews 10, just later on in the first century when it was written, 
the, the author of Hebrews said this. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And then he goes on to say this. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. <laughs> like how many, does that not sound a little bit ironic? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And so there's this crazy connection that Jesus makes between the hope of heaven and the love of Jesus. Uh, there's, a, there's a man by the name of Rodney Stark who wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity. And uh, in this book, he sort of, he traces the conversion rate of believers from, uh, he traces it back to like this little movement in Galilee with Jesus uh, ongoing up into it becoming the primary religion of the Roman Empire a few centuries later. And this guy argues that the spread of Christianity in the early centuries was largely due to the care and compassion that Christians showed for the poor and the sick during different plagues and epidemics. In fact, he says, Christians did not fight against their persecutors by open violence or guerrilla warfare, but willingly went to their martyrdom while praying for their captors. There was something about Christians that enveloped them in peace in the most trying times, and yet made them this force to be reckoned with in the midst of adversity. There was a man in the fourth century named Eusebius, and he was this early church historian. He wrote this. He said, because of the church's compassion for those in need during times of crisis, the deeds of Christians were on everyone's lips. And many other Christian historians believe that epidemics that, that seemed like the end of the world actually promoted the spread of Christianity on the earth. That when these things would get worse, the Christians would rise up. And it wasn't maybe best case scenario for the individual because some of them were being martyred. But on a bigger scale, as far as the church goes, the church grew stronger all throughout the centuries. These reports are the same. You can go back and read about it. In England, during the 1800s, when many were dying of, of cholera, James Spurgeon and his church go and visit hundreds of homes and care for people when nobody else would. Throughout COVID, there's crazy reports right now of what churches are doing in China and what they're doing in Italy to actually help the sick, that they're going out onto the streets and they're giving out masks, that people are actually sharing their food, that they're helping wherever they can. Like, why do they do that? Because that's the church that Jesus died for, is the one that would put others before themselves. One of the craziest situations I ever was put in was in Ethiopia 10 years ago. And um, they took us out six hours out in the middle of this village, out in the middle of nowhere. And they said, um, we're going to take you out to this uh, leper colony. And it's literally this little village where there's just tents full of lepers, like a dozen per tent. They lived in horrible conditions. And nobody wanted to be around them because they were afraid that they could contract the, the illness. And so they pushed them out to the middle of nowhere. And so they said, we're taking you guys out there and you guys are going to hug on lepers and pray for lepers and stand with them and, and be the light and the love of Jesus to these people. And I was like, to be honest with you, 10 years ago, I'm going, this sounds super crazy to me. And I walk into this tent with like 10 people that have been lying on these mats for years of their life. I mean, one guy, he, he was, um, I, I met his whole family and his whole family had leprosy, but this man had leprosy so bad that, you know, you lose all feeling in the nerve ends um, of your limbs. And so the guy had lost all feeling in his leg and had fallen asleep by a fire, and the fire totally burnt him. And I'm sitting with these people, and they're like, just hug them because nobody else will hug them. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. 
here's the white kid from North Idaho, like, coming in, like, doing something that just felt so awkward. And I remember embracing those people and watching the rest of these Christians that went with us grab these people and just wrap their arms around them and start praying with them. And then watching these people with leprosy just start weeping because nobody had ever hugged them before. Like, they were treated like the outcast. Nobody wanted anything to do with them, and yet the encouragement for us was like, go in there. Like, who cares about what they have? Go love them because they need to see Jesus, and the only way they're going to see Jesus is if you go in and be his hands and his feet. He's making an appearance right now. Like, go. Let it be. And in the culture we live in right now, it's sort of, and I'm not going to point fingers, but Christians have removed themselves. I don't want to engage the battle because it's just too weird. There's too many sides. And in the midst of it all is a world of people that are hurting, a world of people that are anxiety-ridden and worrisome and struggling, and nobody wants to go touch them. And honestly, like even this last week, I know this sounds so dumb, but as we had like staff people that were um, testing positive for COVID, we're kind of, we were joking in the office, like this is, these are like modern-day lepers of sorts. Like, people just want to stay away from them. And I'm like, what are we going to do as the church to just be the hands and feet of Jesus right now? Like, I know there's a problem. On the same token, like, people need love. People need to, somebody to stand with them. And if nobody else is going to do it, like, isn't the church the one group that should rise up and say we will? Like, it's not about our life, right? It's about losing our life for the benefit of others. It's about laying down our rights to actually go be the hands and feet of Jesus to somebody else. That means laying down our privileges. That means laying down the things that we want to hold on to so badly because somehow we have the right and the privilege to have those things, which I understand, but on the same token, like, we should be the first to say, I'll put that aside in order to wrap my arms around that person. I'll put this aside in order to invest in somebody else. And unfortunately, when you watch the church begin to shrink back and do this, and sort of like, we're going to just wait it out and see what happens, I think we've missed a massive opportunity. Massive opportunity. So have you come to a place in your life where you can say like Paul did in Philippians chapter 1, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you have the hope of heaven? What, what does Jesus say later in Matthew 10? He says, do not fear what can destroy the body. Fear God who can destroy both body and soul and hell. Like, don't fear what can destroy this body. Fear God. And then he asks this question. He says, what shall it profit a man if he loses the whole world or gains the whole world but actually loses his soul? And one of the things that, that times like these call us back to is sort of the, the brevity and the fragility of life. Like that it's here today and gone tomorrow. That you're given a little glimpse, like a little, you're part of just a little segment of time here on this earth for a specific season. And I don't know about you, but I just feel like I want that time to be meaningful. Like I don't want to play games in my life. And so what does it look like for the church to recognize the fragility of life that it's fleeting here today and gone tomorrow, but be fueled inside to know that let's make this count. Let's step in 
Let's press into the things that everybody else is pulling away from. Let's be present with those who hurt most when everybody else wants to just ignore it and act like it's not an issue. How can we press into the difficulty instead of being people that cower away? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. Um, I want to remind us this morning that we're not saved by our peace and love. We're saved by Christ's peace and love. It's his that we take on. It's not our own. We don't conjure it up ourselves. And so if you've put your faith in Jesus, then the pressure to respond to these times in the perfect way is off because Jesus has actually already done it for you. But at the same time, remember that the power and possibility to not be anxious and to seek first the kingdom is very much available to you and I. Because what does Jesus say before his departure? He says, my peace I give you. My spirit I give you. And the reality is that this is that COVID and everything else that's been happening in 2020 has only further revealed the brokenness in the world. Like it's on display for us to see. And we who call ourselves followers of Jesus, believers, are actually called to bear witness to the kingdom of Christ for his faithfulness to be on display to the world, for our trust in him, his glory to be displayed for the world, not for it to point to us. And so I had this prayer on my heart all week that I was praying leading into this morning that I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me and pray yourself. But I want to pray this morning that the Lord would lead us in how to make this situation a platform for his glory. Because the tendency for us is to cower and not want to deal with it. How does God want to use this as his stage of sorts to display his glory and his provision and his faithfulness to the world? So church, don't worry. Don't be anxious. And the only way that I personally have found in my own life to do this is through the reminder that God who took care of our greatest problem at the cross can certainly be trusted to take care of anything else that we can face in this daily life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I want to thank you this morning that you've secured our eternity. I thank you, Jesus, um, that you see through what's happening today and tomorrow, <laughs> that there really is no need for us to worry and be fearful and anxiety-ridden. Jesus, we trust that you are on the throne and that you are a good God and that you are faithful. I pray for each heart in this room, God, as I know that there's people that are in here who are um, resistant. I know that there's people in here that um, just have allowed walls to be built up around their hearts. And I just am praying, Jesus, for a softening of their hearts that instead of allowing themselves to become calloused, they turn to you this morning and ask Jesus that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, you see them, you know them, you love them. And I pray, Jesus, that as we leave this room, that we be a people that would count it a privilege to serve God, to trust you with our lives, um, to know, Jesus, you've gone before us, that you've got all this ironed out and there's no need for us to freak out. Bless these people, Jesus. May your love and your grace and your compassion go with them and be upon them and move through them. 
In your name we pray. Amen.